Hello, my name is Thomas Berezovsky, and I'm the director of Two Journeys Ministry. If you find Andy Davis's content helpful and you want to help us disseminate free gospel-centered content, please prayerfully consider donating to Two Journeys. All end of your gifts will be matched up to $20,000. Please visit the donate page on twojourneys.org for more information on how to donate. Thank you. Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is Journeys from the Past, and my name is Andy Davis. Now, the purpose of these podcasts is to inspire listeners to courageous, sacrificial actions to make progress in the two journeys, the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of evangelism and missions, by learning the stories of our brothers and sisters from the past. We have two more great studies that take us from 1914, the beginning of World War I, even to our present day. And today we're going to cover a lot of ground looking at the turbulent history of the 20th century. Seven centuries before the birth of Christ, the prophet Isaiah wrote of the deep turmoil of godless nations. Ah, the roar of many peoples, they roar like the roaring of the seas. The raging of the nations, they rage like the raging of mighty waters. That's Isaiah 17, 12. He later gives the reason for this continual undulating raging turmoil of the nations. In Isaiah 57, 20 and 21, he says, The wicked are like the storm-tossed sea, which cannot be still, whose waters churn up mire and muck. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Because the people of the nations are spiritually at war with God, they have no peace in their hearts and they have no peace with each other. Since the fall of Adam, this has always been the case, but the 20th and on into the 21st centuries have put this raging tumult of the nations on clear display, written in blood, on the pages of history. The Church of Jesus Christ has survived and actually even thrived in the midst of this terrible tumult, but the cost has been incalculable. More Christians have died as martyrs in this period than all other periods of human history combined. Tertullian's dictum that the blood of martyrs is seed for the Church has continued to prove true. But the wail of their agony has reached to heaven. Each and every one of their stories has been recorded in heaven and will be replayed by God for the praise of His glory and the honor and delight of the saints in heaven. But in this convulsive age, when the very pillars of human society have been continually shaken, the great comfort of the saints on earth has been the absolute sovereignty of Almighty God, whose throne is in the heavens, who does whatever pleases him, who will most certainly be exalted in both heaven and earth when all has been accomplished. As it says in Psalm 46, 9 and 10, he makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now, in my overview of this final age, I'm going to focus my analysis on a few topics to give the flavor of the comprehensive review awaiting us when we get to heaven. I could title them it this way. First, enduring in a world gone mad. Secondly, fighting for the truth. Thirdly, astonishing progress. And fourthly, the work still to be done. 
So these are four areas that will organize our time. The kingdom of Jesus Christ did not waver or falter during this last century. It has continued to advance, but against the worldly forces of powerful ideologies that staunchly opposed Christ. Some of these ideologies were political in nature, such as fascism and communism. Some of them were as old as Adam's fall, but merely dressed up in modern garb, such as hedonistic materialism. Some had arisen with the development of human technology, scientific materialism. Some were new versions of an old false religion, Islamic fundamentalism. Some were a direct attack on the truth of God's word, theological liberalism. Some came from indifference to biblical truth, secularization. And some came from the lusts of the flesh, sexual liberation and moral corruption. Now, all of these were grave threats to the souls of the elect. But God's grace conquered each one through the continual harvest of souls through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at the first main section, Enduring in a World Gone Mad. On June 28, 1914, a young Serbian nationalist named Gavrila Princep pulled a small automatic pistol from his pocket, rushed the car holding Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophia, and fired the two most fateful shots in European history, killing them both. The Archduke was heir to the throne of the vast Austrian-Hungarian Empire and Princep was rebelling against their rule of his homeland. But the assassination started a chain of dominoes falling that plunged the world into the greatest war ever seen up to that point, the Great War, now known as World War I. I believe it may be the greatest tragedy in human history, for it had as its origin human pride and foolishness, and it gave birth to death on a scale never before witnessed. And since it is easy to connect the dots between the harsh Treaty of Versailles that ended it and the next even more devastating war that followed it, World War II, it can be seen in some sense as a unity of human wickedness all coming from that one assassination. The total death count of World War I will never be known in this world with certainty, but estimates put it somewhere between 15 and 22 million people. The total death count of World War II is estimated at somewhere between 70 and 85 million people. But these are just numbers. Each number represents an individual human life, created in the image of God, knit together in their mother's wombs with eternal souls, presently either in heaven or in hell. Scripture teaches us that the convulsive stage on which they lived and died was in a mysterious way orchestrated by God to achieve His perfect ends. The full revelation of his purposes in this agonized era will be part of our heavenly education and the grounds of much heavenly worship. The worldly ideologies that spawned the great war in Europe were a complex brew. Nationalism, imperialism, industrialization. The heads of state in each nation tapped into the national pride of his people and called on their patriotism, their loyalty to their homeland, resulting in the deaths of many of their young men. Some of the nations, Great Britain, Great, Great Britain, Russia, Germany, Austria, Hungary, France, had worldwide empires to defend. The scientific achievements of the 17th through the end of the 19th centuries made their industries like well-oiled machines, and their economies were capable 
of producing weapons that slaughtered people with a cold efficiency never before seen in military history. After the initial battles of the summer of 1914, the war in Europe settled down to a terrible stalemate. After the indecisive but bloody First Battle of Wipers in Belgium, the contending armies dug trenches and waited for their next orders. In the weeks leading up to Christmas, soldiers from both sides, British, French, and German, rose up out of their trenches in an informal truce. They exchanged food, they played soccer together, they sang Christmas hymns. I've often wondered about the true spiritual condition of men on both sides of no man's land in that war. Given the progress that the gospel had made in all those European nations, it is in no way inconceivable that there might have been two genuinely regenerate soldiers facing each other, sighting long their rifles to kill one another, but both of them indwelt by the Holy Spirit while, while they are trying to kill each other. Like Lincoln's second inaugural rumination on the theology behind the mo moment, we must imagine that somewhere along the line, one or both of the combatants must have heard God wrong. Anabaptist pacifists solved the question by disavowing all connections with the state and being identified as conscientious objectors. But most Christians considered their nationalism, their patriotism, loyalty to their country, as an essential part of their faith. That logically leads two Christians, each trying to kill each other while serving God. I look forward to God's revelations of the answer to this mystery. It's something I've never really been able to figure out. As the First, war, uh, first World War ground on, the killing machine hummed louder and louder, creating deep bitterness and ending all such fraternization between their soldiers. The cold calculations of the German high command in the 11-month Battle of Verdun still chills my blood. They called it Operation Execution, or Place of Execution, Gericht, the Place of Execution. Its theory was to bleed France white at the Battle of Verdun by feeding in just the right number of soldiers, of their own soldiers, to keep the battle going. They actually didn't want to win the battle. They wanted to kill French soldiers. And they calculated that they had more soldiers to burn uh, that would force France to surrender. Their own soldiers were mere numbers in a larger calculation by the German high command, not to be seen as human beings created in the image of God. How shall we look on this evil from heavenly retrospect and not see its basic nature? And with what delight will we see the perfect combination of wisdom, power, and love in our own king, Jesus, and in his empire? How different it is. During the war, the Russian Bolshevists rose up and toppled the reign of the Tsar. They established the Soviet Union, a nation ruled by communism. The concept of communism had first been argued by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels in their 1848 work, The Communist Manifesto. Marx had argued that the poverty and living conditions of the poorest members of their social order were caused by their wealthy oppressors controlling the reins of society to their own advantage. He considered the Christian faith to be a huge part of the problem because it sapped the will of the poor to fight and overthrow their oppressors by calling on them to endure suffering for a heavenly reward that would come in the next world. He called, therefore, religion the opium of the people meaning that it put them into a sleepy condition that merely accepted their circumstances. Communism was no mere theory. It was a call to armed revolution. As Marx wrote, quote, the communists disdained to conceal their views and aims. 
They openly declare that all their ends can be attained only by the forcible overthrow of all existing societal conditions. Let the ruling classes tremble at a communistic revolution. The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Working men of all countries unite. End quote. Communism sought to establish a humanistic utopia, a society free from all social classes and free from all religions. Under the rabble-rousing leadership of Lenin, and 18, from 1870 to 1924 he lived, the Russian communists took advantage of the widespread rage over the bloody war and seized power by armed revolution centered in Petrograd on October 25th, 1917 the October Revolution. After his death in 1924, the Soviet Union eventually became a totalitarian dictatorship under Joseph Stalin. Communism thus arose as one of the most powerful political forces of the age. Before the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, the world's 17 Marxist-Leninist states ruled over roughly one-third of the 5.2 billion that comprised the world's population at that time. One-third lived in communist regimes. The political oppression of Christians in these communist states resulted in thousands of martyrs whose courage for Christ will shine for all eternity. After the end of the Great War, World War I, the war to end all wars, so-called, did not keep its promise. The Treaty of Versailles, signed on June 28, 1919, sought to punish Germany, strip her of all military power, and hold her financially responsible for the staggering costs of the war. The ultimate result was a terrible economic depression, immense political instability, and the deep bitterness of the German people, circumstances ripe for the rise of National Socialism, Nazism, under the fanatical leadership of Adolf Hitler. Hitler initially wooed the German Christians with Christian rhetoric draped in nationalism, but his true intentions were inherently hostile to Christianity. The German Christians, they took this name for themselves, went along with Hitler's vision and passively accepted his increasing control of the churches. On September 27, 1933, 28 Protestant regional bodies united under a single bishop, Ludwig Müller, who was a staunch Nazi. They were virulently anti-Semitic, they got rid of the Old Testament. They reinterpreted the New Testament in Jesus in Aryan terms. I've seen shocking pictures of Nazi uh, infant baptism ceremonies in the Lutheran church during this era with the altar draped with the swastika, the Nazi flag, with the baby in white robes and the priest conducting the ceremony in front of this Nazi emblem in the church. It took immense courage to swim against this nationalistic tide and oppose Hitler and his brown-shirted henchmen. Eventually, anyone who dared oppose him met with immediate arrest and imprisonment. But in May of 1934, there was still room, some room, for opposition. And some courageous German pastors and theologians, led by Martin Niemöller, united as the Confessing Church and produced the Barman Declaration calling churches back to the historic Christian faith and to reject the totalitarian claims of the Nazi government. Niemöller is best remembered for his quote, First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, 
and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Well, we understand that quote in the context of the increased uh, police state and the Gestapo uh, reign of terror that happened as more and more people were shut down by the German government. Though the confessing church espoused no revolution against the state and mainly directed their attention on the corrupt theology of the German Christian so-called church, it wasn't long before the Nazis cracked down. In 1935, over 700 confessing pastors were arrested. The reign of terror was just beginning, and true Christians in Germany were muzzled and cowed by the constant fear of arrest, torture, and death. Many chose simply to remain silent. Even Niemöller himself later acknowledged that he had not done enough to fight the oppression by the Nazis. In this climate, Lutheran confessing pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer took a much more radical approach. Seeing the evil of the anti-Semitism and violence, he said in a sermon in April of 1933 that the church must not merely, quote, bandage the victims under the wheel, but jam the spokes of the wheel itself. End quote. In 1937, he published his greatest book, simply called Nachfolge, which is following, but which has come into the English-speaking world as The Cost of Discipleship. In it, Bonhoeffer argued against cheap grace in favor of a discipleship that calls from each Christian the highest level of sacrifice. For Bonhoeffer, this meant actively working to overthrow the evil government of Adolf Hitler. In order to accomplish this, however, interestingly, he had to appear loyal to the state. Though he was a pacifist, he knew that to refuse enlistment in the German military was punishable by death. He had to either flee the country or enlist. Though he had the opportunity to flee to a position at Union Seminary in New York, he chose to enlist and worked secretly with others who sought to overthrow Hitler. He joined the German Abwehr, which is the uh, military intelligence, and here he had to live effectively a double life, appearing outwardly loyal but secretly plotting revolution against the Nazis. He was eventually arrested and, after 18 months in prison, was executed on April 9, 1945, just a few weeks before the end of the war. The massive scale of World War II, with hundreds of millions of people directly affected by the military conflicts, cannot be comprehended in totality by any human mind. Still less can we perceive here, on earth, God's ultimate and minute purposes in all of it. The majority of the credit for the defeat of Nazi Germany must go to the sacrifices of the Red Army of Russia, uh, the Union of Soviet Soviet Republics, the Soviet Union, given the size of the armies that fought in the East and the number of casualties on both sides, which brings the deeper question of God's use of two godless tyrants who are both purely evil and overtly hostile to Christianity, Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin, to accomplish his inscrutable purposes on earth. Whenever I meet an atheist who seeks to lay at the feet of religion alone all the evil and deaths in human history, usually they cite the Crusades, this kind of thing, I point to the Eastern theater of World War II in which religion-hating Nazism fought to the death atheist communism. What was Satan's activity? Jesus said of Satan's kingdom, how can Satan drive out Satan? A house divided against itself cannot stand. 
If Satan was the power behind both of those evil governments, how do we understand that war except that his real intention is just to kill human beings? And he's willing to use varying ideologies to accomplish that end. God's purposes are deeper and they are pure as light. Only heaven will reveal them fully. The history of communism's oppression of Christianity is bitter and broad. Like Nazism, world communism had its own, has its own tally of martyrs. But always God has controlled the ebbs and flows of mighty human empires to achieve his saving purposes for the elect. When Mao Zedong's Communist Party won control of China, he, became, he began a program of systematic persecution of Chinese Christians. My missions professor at Gordon-Conwell, Christy Wilson, told an amazing anecdote of how the church prospered even under, under Mao's persecution. He said that the Chinese Communist Party was determined to rid the nation of every single Christian, and they began imprisoning and killing Christians by the thousands, especially pastors. But at one point, they stopped. They said to themselves, we could simply kill them all, but the idea of Christianity itself must be forever discredited, stamped out so that it can never pollute China again. They wanted to humiliate and demoralize the remaining Christians, causing them to publicly renounce their faith in Jesus Christ. They noted that Christians derived their greatest strength from being together. So they decided to scatter the Christians they knew all over China, uprooting them from their home cities and placing them in strange new communities. At one point in the lecture, Dr. Christy Wilson began to laugh. He said, in this way, the Chinese Communist Party became the greatest missionary sending agency of the 20th century in China. <laughs> I think that's Psalm 2, God laughing at his enemies and seeing what he can do. That's what God does, sovereignly ruling. Furthermore, the Chinese Communist Party wanted to humiliate the Christians in their new communities. So they gave them degrading work like correcting, collecting garbage from house to house. In this way, laughed Dr. Wilson, they were required to go from house to house every single day. What do you think happened? The Chinese church in China exploded in number. When Mao died in 1976, the number of Christians in China was estimated at well over 100 million. It's going to be one of the greatest stories we will ever study in church history. The laughter of the Lord, Psalm 2 at anti-Christian tyrants rings down through all the corridors of human history. Heaven's eternal review will show how shrewdly God of infinite wisdom, whose thoughts cannot be fathomed, dealt with the puny efforts of human potentates to stop the advancing kingdom of Christ. The clever ways that God allowed tyrants to dig holes for the righteous only to fall in them into them themselves will be delightful heavenly entertainment. But this astonishing advance in China was not without staggering human cost. The beast from the sea in Daniel 7 was allowed to wage war against the saints and conquer them for a time. I have an entire volume in my library dedicated to, quote, China's Christian Martyrs. That's the name of the book written by Paul Hathaway. China's Christian Martyrs. He traces out the trail of blood and tears the Church of Jesus Christ has been on in China for really its entire history. He records the stories of the lawbreaker, so to speak, uh, Adrian Zhu Lingguan, who was exiled outside the Great Wall of China and died in the year 1785, of Peter Wu Guoheng, who was executed for Christ in 1814, and whose last words were, Heaven, heaven is my true home. 
or of missionary Mildred Clark, who wrote to her family before her body was hacked to pieces, quote, I long to live a poured-out life unto Christ among these Chinese, and to enter into the fellowship of his sufferings for their souls, who poured out his life unto death for us. In Hathaway's chapter on the years under Mao, he acknowledged that most of what happened to Christians under the Chinese Communist Party was hidden from the world by communism's wall of silence and isolation. But it is known that thousands of Christians were sent to labor camps without the knowledge of their families, and many died in their harsh conditions. The account ends with these words, most of their names have never been documented on earth, but they have surely been recorded in heaven. Well, I believe that's true. I believe heaven, will, we will not only learn their names, but we will glory in God's revelation of the details of their courage for the sake of his name. All right, subsection, fighting for the truth. While the nations were convulsing and ripping themselves to shreds with these wars and conflicts, the gospel itself was being threatened with a threat every bit as significant as the battle that Athanasius fought against Arianism and the battle that Luther fought against Roman Catholic sacramental semi-Pelagianism, the, the false gospel of the medieval Roman Catholic Church. Now this was a battle for the Bible itself, for historic Christianity against theological liberalism, sometimes called modernism. As we have already seen, it began in the previous century with Schleiermacher's efforts to make Christianity palatable to cultured despisers by arguing that the essence of the Christian faith is in how it makes us feel, one's religious experience, not what actually is true. Albrecht Rischel followed him in Germany by separating history from Christianity, saying, in effect, one can reject the historicity of the bodily resurrection of Christ and still be an ardent Christian. Well, that's, those are the roots of German liberalism. They spread uh, west into America. As science continued to transform the world with its shocking discoveries, Christians had a harder and harder time uh, seeking to harmonize the Bible with these scientific discoveries. When German theologians began to apply the laws of scientific historical inquiry into the Bible itself, it developed a science of biblical criticism. It analyzed the text of the Bible in light of Darwin's theory of evolution and began to see the Bible as an expression of man's developing God consciousness over the centuries. It saw the book of Genesis as the product of at least four different authors as the text itself evolved and sought to unravel the history of its development against the backdrop of the history of Israel. Even more significantly, this approach of biblical criticism was applied to the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus as well. No longer seeing the gospel accounts as the inerrant word of God, but as the product of centuries of development and mythology by the early church. But as scholars like David Friedrich Strauss uh, started to analyze it, uh, the Bible, according to Strauss, made assertions of the miracle-working God-man just as a work of mythologizing. They were, they were turning Jesus into a man of myth by later generations of Christians. For example, accounts of Jesus walking on water were explained away as him out on a hidden jetty. <laughs> of course, this assumes the Galilean fishermen were some of the most idiotic and gullible people in history. The quest for the historical Jesus was on. 
generally resulting in reducing Jesus to a visionary teacher of liberalizing morals who was caught up in the politics of his day and tragically executed by the Romans. My systematic theology professor, Roger Nicole, said in a lecture that the scholars on the quest for the historical Jesus were looking back in time as though staring down into a deep well, and the water at the bottom of the well, in the water at the bottom of the well, they saw a reflection of their own faces. Theological liberalism was flourishing by the end of the 19th century, flush with optimism about the potentiality of, of an evolving humankind to find a man-made utopia based on the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Two world wars leveled that optimism to the ground. But the harmonization of the evident progress of science and the unchanging text of the Bible became one of the most divisive issues of the 20th century. Liberal theology rejected all of the fundamental truths of Orthodox Christianity as unpalatable to the modern mind. They saw Christianity as needing to step up into the modern world of science and progress or be forever left behind as a relic of the ancient past. As a result, a movement called fundamentalism arose stemming from a series of 12 pamphlets published from 1910 to 1915 called The Fundamentals, funded by Lyman Stewart, a devout Presbyterian businessman who made millions in the oil industry. These asserted that the fundamentals of the Christian religion included the inerrancy of the Bible, the deity and virgin birth of Jesus Christ, Christ's miracles, Christ's substitutionary atonement in his blood on the cross, his bodily resurrection from the dead, his second coming in power to earth, the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit in the conversion and sanctification of the sinner, the eternal blessedness of those who are righteous by faith in Christ, and the eternal damnation of those who are not. Fundamentalists were especially alarmed by the proliferation of the theory of evolution and its effect on society. The fundamentalist modernist controversy broke out in earnest after World War I ended. The most famous display of this controversy in society was in a courtroom in Dayton, Tennessee in July of 1925, commonly called the Scopes Monkey Trial. John Scopes was on trial for teaching evolution. William Jennings Bryan was prosecuting the case and defending fundamental Christianity against the godless theory of evolution. Clarence Darrow, a skilled Chicago attorney, was defending Scopes. The low point for fundamentalists occurred when Darrow maneuvered Bryan onto the witness stand and tied knots in his tail with a series of questions about the Bible. As I've looked at the transcript, I would love to have been in Brian's place to handle Darrow's line of questioning, and so would many other 21st century inerrantists who have had plenty of time to formulate excellent answers. But Brian just appeared flustered and paralyzed. Modernism, it seemed, had won the day, at least for a few moments. But the Bible does not so easily melt away. As someone once said, the Bible is an anvil that has destroyed many hammers. The most significant defender of fundamental Christianity against modernism in the first half of the 20th century was Princeton, Princeton professor J. Gresham Machen. In 1923, Machen published a book whose title says it all, Christianity and Lib Liberalism. To Machen, they were two entirely different things. Liberalism on the one hand and the religion of the historic church on the other are not two varieties of the same religion, but two distinct religions proceeding from altogether separate roots. Machen was not opposed to modernity, the application of the fruits of the scientific method to everyday human life, but to the theology of modernity, which was nothing less than unbelief in the words of Scripture and the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The battle for the Bible continued throughout the century. Every mainline denomination in the United States had been infected with liberalism, and most had come to reject the inspiration and authority of the Bible wholesale. But some leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention saw this as a hill on which to die and fought to regain control of the seminaries from liberal theology, eventually succeeding by the beginning of the final decade of the century. Fundamentalism as a movement suffered from major flaws. It tended to be anti-intellectual and to avoid sharp doctrinal articulation. Even more devastating, it tended to retreat entirely from the surrounding world and its sufferings. Looking ahead to the premillennial return of Christ and his thousand-year reign on earth as the solution to all problems. As a result, in 1947, Carl F. H. Henry wrote The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism, criticizing fundamentalists for this retreat, for failing to apply the truths of the inerrant Word of God to the suffering of the modern world. In the second half of the 20th century, Carl Henry and evangelist Billy Graham led a new approach that has generally been called evangelicalism, which sought to maintain a commitment to the inerrancy of the Bible while seeking to engage the world both in terms of spiritual lostness through the gospel and the miseries of physical life. At the Lausanne Conference for World Evangelization convened in 1974 with Billy Graham as the honorary chair, John Stott presented a harmonization between social action and evangelism as two blades of a pair of scissors or the two wings of a bird. At a conference at which I spoke, sponsored by the Gospel Coalition, this language was modified in light of the truth that souls of, are of infinitely greater worth than bodies, though Jesus cared for both. So the slogan of that conference became, we are committed to alleviating all suffering, but especially eternal suffering. The fight for faithfulness to the Bible as inerrant, completely verbally inspired by the Holy Spirit, has been essential to the gospel that evangelists and missionaries have continued to carry to the ends of the earth. But the struggle to continue to engage the sorrows of life in this present physical world, including poverty, disease, racism, injustice, war, etc., has continued to rage. As Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you and you can help them whenever you want, Mark 14, 7. Yet without the truth of the gospel as perfectly recorded in the Bible, what would it profit the church to transform the whole world into a pain-free utopia if the inhabitants end up forfeiting their souls? So in today's time together, we have seen an incredible spread and advance of the gospel in the 20th and on into the beginning of the 21st century. Next time, we're going to talk more about the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth and the success of missions over that same period of time. Now, as we look ahead uh, to what God still will do in this world, and as we have had the chance to look back at what God did through our brothers and sisters in Christ, we realize that in every generation, God has gone ahead of his people, preparing them for good works that they should do by the power of the Spirit. And so it is for you, my dear brother and sister in Christ. God has gone ahead of you and has prepared good works for you to walk in. And those works are essential to his worldwide plan. So go forward in the faith of our fathers. Go forward in the faith of the gospel to do those good works for the glory of God and the spread of his kingdom. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes 
and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.